Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 17 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 27th of May. Uh, Leon, we've got Tom Cridland, a very interesting young man. That's right, all the way from London. And he's going to be talking to us all about his company, which is actually Tom Cridland. And he does uh, sustainable clothing and uh, sells it on the market and he's uh, yeah he's doing very well I mean trousers that last 30 years that's right no no but and he does it all sustainably without using uh, sweatshot labor fantastic and so we're going to have a chat with him after that we're going to have a chat with economist Nicholas Gruyan uh, he's going to be talking to us all about social impact agreements and very interesting it is too okay now we'll talk to uh, Tom Cridland Tom Cridland tell us about your sustainable clothing brand I founded Tom Cridland as a sustainable fashion brand about two years ago with a government startup loan of £6,000. I was 23 and I had no previous experience in the fashion industry, um, but I knew that I wanted to create truly durable clothing. Um, and as I became more and more familiar with the fashion industry and what makes it tick, and certainly the fast fashion retailers that have taken up a large proportion of the space on most high streets around the world, I became more and more aware of how gravely the fast fashion industry is impacting um, consumers, impacting the environment, and impacting people like me who want to start independent brands. And I, over time, became determined to fight against it. And what prompted you to start it up two years ago? Two years ago, I just graduated from university, and I wanted to specialize um, well, I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, and I wanted my new brand, um, which I had been developing for a little while. I wanted to focus on making the perfect pair of men's trousers. Um, so, you know, initially my idea wasn't the biggest light bulb moment, um, but I was determined to give starting a business a go. Um, and it was through entering the fashion industry and starting up a menswear brand, a direct consumer menswear brand, that I learned more about the sustainability issues within the fashion industry. And that led me to um, the collection that I'm most proud of, which is the 30-year collection, and in particular, 30-year sweatshirt, which I'm extremely proud to say I feel has brought sustainable fashion um, to a broader market and maybe highlighted some of those issues that many people didn't choose to ignore but weren't exposed to as much as they really should be. So uh, what is sustainable fashion? Sustainable fashion in my opinion, and uh, there are many different interpretations uh, of it, but I think it, it's simply uh, trying to treat fashion less disposably, trying to make clothing that's more durable to conserve our natural resources, and as well as that, try and make sure that the people putting together the fashion are treated fairly, that the, the conditions are ethical, and, and they should be excellent, really, um, and to do our utmost to protect the world really from being affected by the fashion industry churning out mass-produced goods that are built cheaply and uh, actually sometimes systematically made so that they'll fall apart. Tom, uh, where do you get uh, your uh, garments manufactured? The garments are manufactured at the moment in Italy. We started in Portugal. Um, we always try to partner with world-class 
craftsmen and seamstresses to put the garments together so that they will last 30 years. And indeed, when developing the concept together with the suppliers in Portugal, I'm half Portuguese, um, I sat down with them and I said, I, I've got this idea to try and promote the sustainable fashion. It's going to be the something year sweatshirt. Can you show me your oldest sweatshirt? Um, what, what do you think is a reasonable guarantee? And, and I didn't want to give a gimmicky lifetime guarantee. I wanted to make it something that was a finite length of time, something ambitious, something to make people's jaws drop, certainly, but also something that didn't come across as too much of a, of a gimmick because that was the risk with a project like this. So quality of garment would be um, paramount, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it, it starts and end, ends with the uh, quality when it comes to the Tom Cridland brand and when it comes to the 30-year collection. Absolutely. A lot of garments are now made in... Um China, Asia, I mean, that seems to be where most of the emphasis seems to be coming from. Is that contributing to the non-sustainability? I wouldn't say it's a matter of location. It's a matter, it's always a matter of quality, and it's always a matter of how people are treated. If you were to go, for example, like some people um, who are very much a huge part of the sustainable fashion um, movement, I know from having watched the documentary The True Cost by my good friend Andrew Morgan, it is perfectly possible to do something great somewhere like India, for example, or Bangladesh. Um, I know that in the true, true cost, there's this wonderful brand who have set up their own facility in Bangladesh. People are treated excellently. Um, they're, they're given you know, the, the best working conditions equal to European um, conditions, equal to those of, of, of someone in Britain. But I mean, these are people really passionate about sustainable fashion. And these are few and far between. When it comes to the majority of people working in Bangladesh, for example, um, you, you know, you don't need to look at the Rana Plaza disaster and the poultry levels of improvements that have been shown since from fast fashion retailers, that working conditions in, in a lot of those places are, are terrible. But it's not a matter of location. It's a matter of what we do. And in terms of being a sustainable fashion brand, you don't want to be adding too much to your carbon footprint. So there are arguments against um, making outsourcing production to Asia. But if you were to do it properly uh, and you were to improve the lives of people out there, unlike the fast fashion corporations who pretend like they are making a difference but really aren't, then that's also commendable because you're improving quality of human life in places where it's often dire. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the outsourcing of, of fashion, in answer to your original question, it is harmful that it's going there because it's being made cheaply, because people's lives are being affected gravely. They're not getting working conditions that are up to any sort of acceptable standard. Um, so that's the reason why there's a problem with that. It's not necessarily because of the location to start with. How big a role do the major retailers play in all of this? I mean, they want to get the goods at the cheapest possible price and they'll be looking at the cheapest possible source for it. Well, there, there's, there's um, such a thing as, as excessive greed, really. Obviously, I understand that businesses need to make money and I run a business and a lot of people have said, how can you be a sustainable fashion brand as well as a sustainable business? That doesn't make sense. Uh, and that's quite a narrow-minded view to take. I think part of the problem is w when you look at something like the Rana Plaza disaster, the factory that collapsed, the factory in question, that, that would have happened as a result of them being driven down on price by a fast fashion retailer to the point where they couldn't afford building maintenance. And of course, they're not going to 
drop the con contract because they're being negotiated down. If they drop the contract, then they've lost everything. They've lost the whole business. So they have to cut corners. So what corners do they cut? Stuff like building maintenance, stuff like workers' conditions. So it really is up to the big corporations who have the global reach and the resources um, to scale their businesses and set up shop all around the world. They've got all the power. They're abusing it at the moment, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, Apple in uh, its uh, factories in Shenzhen in China has come under a lot of pressure about you know, worker suicides and things like that. And things seem to straighten out fairly well there. But there's nothing in the clothing industry yet, is there? No. Um, I, well, I know that H&M are saying that they're doing a lot of stuff, but you only need to talk about those kind of issues with people like Andrew and people who, with whom he worked on the True Cost documentary. Um, because I'm by no means, um, I, I mean, a lot of people would say that, that we've done a, an admirable thing in creating the 30th sweatshirt and getting a lot of people to think about sustainable fashion. I'm still learning. I'm still only 25, and I've got to learn about all these issues from people who I feel um, can help my brand make more of a positive difference. So when I speak to them, uh, it really becomes apparent that no matter what the, the marketing campaign by someone like H&M is and how, how sustainable they're claiming and purporting to be, um, there's still such a long way to go for, for the fashion industry because it's got worse. Fast fashion wasn't a it isn't a you know a long-standing phenomenon uh it's it's something that's come along more recently so now um exporting from the uk for are you exporting are you moving into that area um well we take the direct consumer route really so we don't, we don't deal in terms of in terms of exporting large quantities to department stores and boutiques because our markups are so small that we don't have the ability to work with third-party retailers um, as far as any negotiation that I've, I've, that I've had has gone. And we've had Le Bon Marché from Paris, we've had Saks Fifth Avenue, we've had House of Fraser here in the UK, we've had major department stores interested in selling our products. But I want to make clothing that's well-made, what many people might describe as luxury clothing, accessible to people um, at a price point that is actually quite reasonable when you take into account cost per wear. We are selling clothing of a quality that you would really have to go shopping on Bond Street or Fifth Avenue to find. Um, you'd have to go shopping in luxury stores. And certainly, you know, I know that the type of suppliers and seamstresses and craftsmen that we work with, they would normally be making sweatshirts sold by brands who might be flogging them for, you know, upwards of $300, $400 per sweatshirt, which is ludicrous, really. We want to try and make our value accessible. So in terms of exporting, we do have customers on six con continents who order direct on TomCridland.com, but it's all about cutting out those... Tom Cridland, look, thank you very much for your time. I oh, know, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Well, Tom works on the basis that if you use sustainable materials and if you produce quality, you might get a business success. That's right, and you're certainly heading in that direction. It's actually very, very interesting. It is indeed. Now, Nick Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, uh, you've been doing a lot of research on social impact bonds. Tell us about it. Well, social impact bonds are a something dreamed up by a guy called Jeff Mulgan, who was currently – he was then – CEO of an organisation called the Young Foundation, which is uh, a British uh, think tank come 
sort of do tank, it sort of does things as well, and he's now heads up an organisation called Nesta in the UK. The idea is that uh, sort of comes from a thought experiment. That's kind of what's good about it and what's bad about it. Um, the, the, the government finds itself involved in spending lots of money trying to address all sorts of social ills. We spend money on prisons, lots of money on prisons, lots of money on the dole, lots of money on homeless and so on. The idea of a social impact bond was to say, well, if somebody came to the government with an idea, an idea to lower the rate of recidivism or reoffending by prisoners, uh, why, at least in theory, it would make sense for the uh, government to say to them, well, you invest the money in the same sort of way that you would uh, pay us money if we sold you a bond and then we'd pay you interest every year and then give you your principal back at the end of the term. Uh, but in this case, we'll call it a social impact bond. You invest in a program that reduces reoffending by prisoners. Every year you succeed, we'll pay you a uh, reward for that. Uh, let's calculate it at 6 or 7% interest if you do a reasonable job and 15% if you do a great job. And uh, that way we can introduce innovative approaches, uh, not necessarily approaches that have been checked out by government in advance, but innovative approaches. And it, it sort of gets you some way towards the idea of a, a constructed market in social uh, goods. Uh, and so that's the idea. And um, as I said to you, it has the strengths and the weaknesses of something which has been run up from a bit of a thought experiment. Has it been used anywhere? Mm-hmm. So the British government has been doing this for, I, I'm not sure exactly the period of time, probably about five years now. The New South Wales government has got two social impact bonds running as we speak. Uh, so, for instance, one is based around the rolling out of a program called NewPin, which has been imported, I think, from the United Kingdom, which is a community-based early childhood protection and development program and that's being delivered by a group of people which includes and I may have the bank wrong but uh, you know this is partly funded by NAB I think but also it has some substantial not-for-profit philanthropies involved and another one is uh, addressing uh, family uh, called Resilient Families is delivered by the Benevolent Society again in New South Wales. And you can see these two social projects funded ultimately by government payments but, fu but funded up front by investors. Uh, you can see annual reports or every 18 months or so there's a fairly substantial new report on how they're going. How successful are these programs? I would say the jury's out on them. Uh, I think it's quite good that we're doing these experiments. The problems with them are, I could list about four. Firstly, in exactly the same way that building freeways with private money tends to be not just more expensive than building them with public money, but a lot more expensive than building with public money. Uh, so that's the first strike against them. I, I'm not too worried about that because you're trying to introduce innovation and it's, it is it turns out it is sadly very difficult to do that directly with government 
I think more that, that there are a bunch of issues, a, a bunch of further issues. One of the things is that governments, when they get in a position to set these things up, they will talk about the importance of transferring risk to the private sector. As we know from our experience with roads, risk transfer to the private sector is often quite poor. That's for a whole variety of reasons, one of which is that the government is less skilled at these things than the private sector. Here, I think both sides are flying a bit blind, but keep in mind that the political incentives on a government are for this to be a success. If one of the um, programs effectively goes broke, uh, then that's not seen as a success. So it's not clear that uh, risk transfer will always be successful. There's also the, pro the the problem we've had with roads of, you know, developing a culture of rent-seeking. And more generally, it's just not entirely – well, I think it's – I don't think it's clear that this kind of profit-based framework really works in this area because one of the things is that there are a large number of factors. If you're going to lower recidivism of prisoners being released into the community at the end of their term – then you might, inside the prison, you might be able to do, I'm sure you can do things to improve performance, but all of the things that happen in a local community are also very important and you want people to feel that they're doing this out of some sense of obligation, some sense of social cohesion. And when they see some entrepreneur making making like a bandit off to the bank, that isn't exactly the best way to establish those things. So those are the weaknesses. And I and based on those weaknesses, in a sort of in principle way, I would be largely against the, the, this mechanism. Uh, however, having had a fair bit of experience in the area, I mean, you've just heard me be pretty jaundiced about the ability of innovation within governments and just just doing things like paying by performance seems to be, which I think would be a much better intermediate step, is just people have been saying this should happen for 15 years or more and it hasn't happened. So maybe you need to shock the system into some familiarity with working this way, give, give the politicians an announceable, you know, all the bells and whistles, all the usual political tricks, and maybe we can trick ourselves into some more thoughtful approach to these very difficult problems uh, but you know I'm I think the jury is still out and and to their credit the office that runs this in the New South Wales government is, is has a similarly non-ideological view about what you know where we take this this line of thinking would it be possible to actually develop a system which is loosely based on social impact bonds but uh, addressing all those other concerns yeah I think that's right I think you might sort of show a successful experiment. The investors in the social impact bond go off and have made their money. And then the, the real test, which is always the hardest actually, is not to produce the initial innovation, but then for the system to absorb it and transform itself in the light of the experience of the innovation. So uh, I would be pretty jaundiced that you could roll a lot of this stuff out with social impact bonds, but you might be able to shock the system into a new way of working. And then the question is, can you spread the successes and liquidate the business as usual stuff that doesn't work? No government in the world has done that well. No reason why Australia 
can't be the first, given that we were the first with, you know, income-based student loans, the child support agency, the best AIDS strategy in the world, the most targeted welfare system in the world. No reason why we can't do this better than anyone else. But we would really have to fully address where it's going wrong and to contain that. That's right. That's right. And we have tended to be better at sort of stroke of the pen reform and reform that can be made in a government department in this, in a capital city, uh, I'm thinking particularly Canberra, than we have been at much more subtle reform where you're having to, instead of there being one obvious answer, i.e. get rid of tariffs uh, or at least lower them very substantially, what you need is you need a system which is running experiments and learning from those experiments and spreading the successes and transforming or liquidating the failures. And um, that's that's a hard thing to do. And it was only a bit of rhetoric when I said there was no reason why we couldn't do it. We haven't been particularly good at that, but then neither has anyone else much. I think the Brits are probably a bit better than us at it and some parts of the United States system. But, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that our state governments have been sort of traduced by Canberra as not really very, very good at reform. And in many ways, they're much closer to these systems. And, you know, when you see the Commonwealth government try and run a service department, we'll just think of the Department of Immigration. Nicholas Gruen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Thank you. So what do you think about Nick's social ideas? Well, the I think it could work if they prepare for the downside of it. It could actually work. It's actually not a bad idea. It's having social impact bonds. That's right. Yeah, And of course, what Nicholas is saying is that uh, let's run a trial and see how it does go. That's right. Yeah. And that's very sensible. So now, Leon, the news. Well, Gary, first of all, global finance chiefs at the G7 warn Britain that they shouldn't vote to leave the European Union on June the 23rd. They've told them the Brexit will have dire economic consequences. And that coincides with a warning from the UK Treasury that Britain faces a year-long recession if it leaves the European Union. And Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, has warned that British house prices will be up to 18% less if Britain voted to leave the EU. Yeah, and on top of that, across the Atlantic, You've got Donald Trump, who, um, while he might be not a shoo-in, but he could just win the presidency, and boy, every bet will be off then. Well, I can tell you this. Uh, there was a lunch this week uh, of Business Chiefs, uh, the Australian Financial Review, and they were saying that the wild cards for them were a Donald Trump presidency and a Brexit. Really wild card. They, these were the Armageddon scenarios. <laughs> well, yeah, let's hope it doesn't pan out. That's right, that's right. Meanwhile, after marathon talks in Brussels that lasted up until 2am on Wednesday, Greece reached a deal with creditors for debt relief. And as part of the deal, the Euro Group ministers have agreed to releasing 10.3 billion euros, that's about 16 billion Aussie, in new funds to Greece. More importantly, Athens supposedly is going to get debt relief in 2000. 2018, if that's deemed necessary to meet agreed criteria on its payments burden to reduce its debt mountain. And the agreement brought the International Monetary Fund on board to help the Greek bailout. Gary, it's a bit of a concern. Oh, it is indeed. I mean, you're getting to the point where the, the debt mountain is so big, Greece will never ever pay it and it'll just require another bailout. And Gary, I've looked at, the, looked at the deal and it actually doesn't give any real commitments and it's left all the important details to be sorted out after the German federal elections next year. 
year. <laughs> yes. But Europe needed to do something before the June 23 referendum when Britain decides whether or not it should stay in the European Union. The IMF had been p- telling the European co- governments to take a hit to relieve some of Greece's debts, and countries like Germany and Netherlands, who were under pressure from voters weary of helping the Greeks, refused to do this. And that resulted in extensive wrangling with the IMF, and in the end, the IMF retreated from its hardline stance. And as part of the deal, uh, significant debt relief for Greece won't be considered until mid-2018, when the bailout actually ends. And so they might look at issues like reducing interest rates, extending loan maturities, easing repayment profiles, returning profits to Greece from the European Central Bank's securities market program. But no one is expecting this is going to be the end of the story, Gary. And there are certain things about the Greek culture and economy that are working against any sort of resolution. Well, Gary, to my way of thinking, this was very much an agreement of convenience. Uh, Greece needed, needed the money now and they were behind on their payments. And uh, I think that's going to continue. And so what does the European Union do? It agrees to give them more money. Now, How long are the Germans going to keep on doing that? Well, we'll know next year when Angela Merkel's up for election. Now, dairy farmers hit by sudden price cuts by dairy manufacturers will share in a $570 million support package announced by the Commonwealth. Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce said his caretaker government would deliver immediate assistance to dairy farmers in hardship to help them manage through difficult times and return to profitability. And dairy farmers across Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania have been rocked by the dairy giant's decision to cut milk price retrospectively, plunging many of them into massive debt. And Mr Joyce said $55 million in dairy recovery concessional loans by for Murray Goldburn and Confinterra suppliers will be made available this year, as well as $500 million in concessional loans over 2016 and 2017. And the recovery loans will be for terms of 10 years. There'll be nine financial councillors in Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia and New South Wales. They'll be employed to work specifically with the dairy sector, as well as the appointment of the Department of Human Services Dairy Industry Liaison Officer. The government will also allocate an extra 18 staff to speed up processing of farm household allowance claims. Uh, the Department of Human Services will also base two mobile service centres in dairy areas. Joyce has pledged to work with the industry to establish a commodity milk price index if re-elected to ensure the domestic industry does not again find itself in a, dairy, in, in a situation where dairy processes suddenly, unexpectedly reduce farm gate milk prices late in the season. Yeah, it's still unknown really why all this suddenly happened. Well, it was because there's an oversupply of milk Absolutely, in the world yeah. and uh, this is a real problem and um, and it's going to... and. I was looking at some analysts during the week and they were saying that the problem could last until 2018. Yeah, because you've got breeding cycles and, and um, you know, calving cycles and whatnot that are pretty well immutable. Well, well, the problem is the world is in oversupply of milk. Now, I think it's incumbent on farmers to actually develop management plans to see them through this. Yeah, that's that's true, which would mean uh, lowering the number of calves for a start. That's right. Now, West Farmers has announced write downs totaling 2.3 billion at its target retail and current coal mining businesses. Uh, the giant WA based conglomerate said the adjustments followed a strategic review that found current week trading conditions did not justify the carrying values ascribed to the two businesses. As a result, non cash impairment of one point, between 1.1 billion and 1.3 billion will be recorded target. Cura will see 600 to 850 million slashed from its carrying value. Target will also take 145 million of uh, restructuring costs, but so 
associated with the retail chain. And that's in addition to expected earnings before interest tax loss in target of approximately 50 million. Richard Goiter was uh, almost apologetic, wasn't he? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a real, but you know, they, they've got to make these provisions now. Now, home appliance chain, the good guys, is moving ahead with its plans to float on the Australian Stock Exchange in an $800 billion float. And in making its decision, the good guys has ignored offers from trade buyers like South African group Steinhoff International and JB Hi-Fi, which last week confirmed it to have preliminary and exploratory talks with the retailer about a takeover. The good guys said the firm would also consider any alternative ownership proposals that emerge, but it said any offer from Harvey Norman will not be considered. <laughs> I wonder why. Uh, the Good Guys has an annual turnover of approximately $2 billion bucks. It operates over 100 large format stores across metropolitan and regional Australia. So that's one to watch. Blue Scope has increased its earnings guidance by almost 30%, taking it from $209 million to $270 million. The stronger performance has been driven largely by early delivery of targeted cost reduction, higher steel and iron ore prices, better than anticipated Australian domestic dispatches, and better than expected margins in the international business according to Bluescope. And all this is good news in an industry losing money. And in February, Bluescope announced it had more than doubled its statutory profit to $200.1 million. That's up from $92.7 million a year ago. Chief Executive Paul O'Malley put it down to tough decisions, including 500 job cuts at, a port, at its Port Kembla Steelworks. And all this was part of the company's $200 million cost savings target. So it, all those hard decisions have paid off, Gary. Yeah, and they're looking better than Arium, aren't they? Absolutely, which uh, was put in voluntary administration with debts of about $4 billion. Flight Centre Travel Group has warned its full year under underlying earnings before tax is expected to fall by 2 to 5% from last year's $366.3 million. That's down from an earlier forecast of a 4.428% rise in profit. And the Travel Group said political uncertainty in Australia and the United Kingdom, falling airfare prices, poor trading in the US leisure market and investment in growth was attributing to this. And uh, it's also important to remember that Qantas and Virgin have also warned of weak demand ahead of the federal election on July the 2nd and they both cut capacity and that's in an environment where airfares are falling. And of course you've got the effect of the uh, falling Australian dollar. That's right, that's right. Now in a massive backflip, Westpac has decided to lift the maximum loan to value ratio on investment loans from 80% to 90% and that's in a backflip on last year's uh, crackdown on property investors and Westpac and St George revealed this change to mortgage brokers and that's followed a big slowdown in lending to property investors. And what this means is that property investors will only have to pay a deposit of 10% rather than 20%. It also suggests that banks are loosening tighter lending conditions imposed last year to quell booming property prices. And it comes after Westpac and other banks introduced tougher lending conditions targeting foreign buyers. And all of that's triggered concerns in the industry that it's slowing down residential apartment approval process. So um, certainly the growth in building approvals is coming at a modest 3.7% in March. And so it's actually cooling off. Yeah, well, I mean, considering the uh, the problem that some of these apartment building owners have got now about selling yeah. That's understandable. So, yeah, so Westpac has uh, done a huge... They, they've realised they've gone too far before. Now, after soaring to new heights earlier this year, iron ore prices are sinking again. On Monday, they fell 6.7% to $51.22, a dry metric tonne. That's down 27% from the peak of more than 70 bucks in April. That's according to the Metal Bulletin. That left the price at the lowest level since March the 3rd this year. Iron ore prices have fallen 27% from late April after hitting a 16-month high 
high of $70.46 a tonne in the lead up to the budget. And what's scary, Gary, is that the May budget had actually forecast an iron ore price of $55 a tonne. Now, Macquarie is now forecasting more pain for iron ore companies and its forecasting prices will retreat to $47 a tonne through to 2018. Citigroup is also bearish and its forecast continuing oversupply from miners while Chinese steel mills are keeping a lid on their iron ore holdings because of weak steel prices. And it's predicting it's also predicted iron ore will average $47 this year. So that's well down on the budget forecast, Gary. And the only good thing probably is agribusiness is picking up again. That's right. Now, dividend payments to Australian investors might not grow at all this year. According to a new survey, the Henderson Global Dividend Index shows that Australian dividends fell almost 50% over the March quarter, compared in the same quarter in 2015. Australian dividend growth has been hit by Woodside Petroleum moving its payment in the second quarter, BHP Billet and Cutton's dividend payout, and uh, Henderson Global Investors Head of Equity, um, Alex Crook, says the figures reflect local investors' dependence on banks and commodity producers. And that makes up more than two-thirds of their equity income. So they're going to have to diversify a bit more. Yeah, it makes it harder for uh, retirees as well because they keep chasing diminishing yields. That's right. Well, it just means you're going to have to mix up the share portfolio. And take higher risk. That's right. That's right. Now, despite the close election, consumer confidence has crept higher with good conditions in the jobs market. The Reserve Bank of Australia are cutting interest rates this month and solid auction clearance rates and stock market gains. The ANZ Roy Morgan can Consumer Confidence Index rose 0.5% in the week ending 22nd of May. It's now 3.6% higher over the past four weeks. And that's interesting. So let's see how people are responding to the election. Yeah, well, the election is, uh, I don't know if people are interested or not, but it is having an effect. Finally, Gary, Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Glenn Stevens has defied calls to lower the bank's cent- uh, central bank's 2 to 3% inflation target, uh, despite critics saying they have to do it. He says the banks will continue to use it when it's setting interest rates. And he was speaking at a function in Sydney organised by the Trans-Tasman Business Circle, and he said there was a need to be patient when it came to applying monetary policy to take inflation back into the target range and restore economic growth. And he said the RBA maintained a flexible approach to inflation, and he also warned that investment in property is never going to be an easy road to riches. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. Next week, we're talking to uh, internet entrepreneur James Valentine. Indeed, we are. In the meantime, you keep in touch with us on Twitter at Talking Biz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.